0: We are extremely uh, pleased and blessed to be um, in the company of our brother, Professor Booker T. Coleman, at the uh, uh, school, uh, PS, what school is it?
1: This is CIS 147
0: in the Bronx. CIS 147. District in Bronx. 9. District 9. And uh, we're in a very beautiful office, which is his office. and. Um, extremely uh, well uh, presented with all kinds of um, symbols and uh, artifacts and books, um, maps, uh, all kinds of things that will educate our young people to who and what they are. Today we're going to look at uh, Africa, in particular Ethiopia, and the importance of Ethiopia to humanity, uh, to African civilization world civilization and we want Brother Booker T. Coleman to uh, kind of give us a, an overview of the importance of Ethiopian contribution to
2: the world
1: clearly Potep And I'd like to thank Clemson Brown, Minister Clemson Brown, for being here and talking to us about this important issue. Because one of the things that we try to do in teaching our children, we teach children from pre-kindergarten through eighth grade. And one of the things that we attempt to do is to let them know, as Minister Brown has said, to let them know who they are. And there really is no way to understand who we are as a people, as an African people. And I include European Africans and Asian Africans while we're talking about it too. The whole of humanity owes a great debt to Ethiopia for what Ethiopia has done, both male and female, looking in terms of the development of not just humankind, but also civilization. And what you're looking at here is what we call, in geographical terms, as a relief map. And the wonderful thing about a relief map is that, as you know, a lot of maps are flat. What's good about this map is that you can actually see the raised mountains, you can actually see the rivers. And here, on this relief map of Africa, you can see Ethiopia, which is here. Now, we must be careful because Ethiopia as a word, while it is now being given to a specific geographic location, in the ancient world, William Leo Hansbury, as well as other scholars, teach us that Ethiopia was a, a term applied to the entire continent. We find references in Portuguese literature to parts of Mozambique being called Lower Ethiopia. Not just that, but we also see European scholars during the 15th, 16th, and 17th century referring to these individuals in this area of Africa. They are changing the word from calling them Ethiopians to calling them Moors. In understanding this concept, you then can understand the importance of understanding that Moors were Africans and that in fact the Moors going into what the Muslim nation called Al-Andalus, A L A N D U L A S Al-Andalus, which today we call Spain, was in fact an African nation going into the Iberian Peninsula. So we owe a great debt to Ethiopia, but Ethiopia is so important on so many different levels. This raised relief map shows us how geographically Ethiopia is important. In fact, when you look at the Great Lakes region, and you look at the beginnings of the White Nile, and you follow the White Nile as it flows fluently through Africa, what you tend to see is a wonderful river of a clear substance moseying its way north. It is going, as Dr. Ben would teach us, it is going up south. However, Lake Tana in Ethiopia is where the Blue Nile begins. Lake Tana is right here. This is the origin of the Blue Nile. Now, what is so important about it is because it is so high up in terms of its location that the waters come gushing down. And it is, in fact, those rushing waters meeting the White Happy, as the Africans called it. They call the Nile River Happy, H-A-P-I, or I've seen it H-A-P-Y. As the Blue Nile comes down and meets White Happy... At Khartoum, that is what gives it its rush to move forward, and in fact, you can give credit to the blue happy for having created Kemet or Egypt in the first place, because possibly the white happy might have just moseyed to a certain level. And then just move back. However, with the rush of the waters of the blue, it pushed the waters further. Not to mention, of course, that because it was blue, it was called blue because of its darkness, because of its indigo color. It is this dark silt, it is this rich Uh, soil that coming up created the fertile areas that later would be able to flourish, the types of agriculture that later Ethiopians would then bring into the Kemetic region. So Ethiopia is important to us for so many different reasons. It created Kemet. It created civilization. Some of the oldest fossil finds we find in the geographical region that we call today Ethiopia. It is so important for us to understand. It's so important for our young people to understand this. It is important for humanity to understand the importance of Ethiopia. And this is what we're doing with our young people, and this is why the relief map is so very important.
0: You you were talking about um, the Great Lakes area. Can we begin there talking about those gorillas and then how Ethiopia becomes the first areas of um, an organized kind of human governmental
1: system. Sure. You see, when you look at the development of humanity, the Great Lakes region, and the reason why I say the Great Lakes region is because there are so many lakes, there are so many water sources in this area. Again, we look at uh, um, a number of different things, Renzori, we look at um, Kilimanjaro, the mountains of the moon, uh, in terms of Tanzania, Kenya. When we look at the origins of humanity coming up out of this area, people say, well, you know, I mean, why does it have to be in this area? Well, let's look at a very similar. Now, I know that there are many people who get very concerned and upset when we start talking about somebody coming out of apes. I do not necessarily believe that humanity evolved out of apes, but I do believe that the apes and humanity have a common ancestor that shared certain physical or what is called phenotypical similarities and what we're looking at is that when you look at the crossroads of the countries of Uganda Rwanda and Zaire there is a mountain range known as Verunga the Verunga Mountains V-I-R-U-N-G-A Verunga the only place we can find gorillas in the origins of gorilla life in ape life is in the Virunga Mountains. In the mountains of Virunga, they then spanned out as they developed themselves into what we now call the eastern lowland and the western lowland gorillas. In other words, those that travel east are the eastern lowland as opposed to mountain. You then have the western lowland that went west, lowland, as opposed to mountain, you have lowland. However, They all originated out of the same concept. The same is true for our research in terms of the Great Lakes region of Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. Today it is called Lake Victoria. You have uh, Lake Rudolph. You have Lake Edward. You have a number of Great Lakes. Of course, when people of European descent came down into this area, they named everything after themselves. Of course, you know the Africans had names for each of these areas no matter what. And the Nile was called Happy. The early parts of humanity that we find are the Australopithecines. We find two forms of Australopithecines. Sheikhan de Job teaches us that the Australopithecus robustus and Australopithecus gracile were the first two forms of humanity. You then come to the third form, which is homo habilis, or the human of ability. Coming out of that, the fourth species of humanity is homo erectus, the fifth, Homo sapien, and the sixth, which is us, Homo sapien, sapien. The evidence of life coming out of Africa clearly shows that the only, the only place that you will find the Australopithecines. Or the Homo habilis is in Africa. And the closer you get to the Great Lakes region, the more Australopithecines you will find. As you go further north, you then begin to see Homo habilis, which is the human of ability. Human of ability having made tools, and that's why they were called Homo habilis. The first form of humanity that we find outside of Africa is Homo erectus. That's the first form. However, it's important to understand that although Homo sapiens also, that it all flowed out of Africa. There is an argument that, that, of yes, they will say, yes, that's true, but we developed civilization when we got to Europe. That's not true. And all you have to do is look at the Aurignacian culture, the tool-making culture that Europe claims to have come from, to understand that it's almost overnight that you see this culture come into Europe. Now, you cannot develop tools and those higher forms of thinking just overnight. If it does come overnight and if it does come quickly, it is because it has been brought from somewhere else. So the Homo sapiens sapien went into Europe fully civilized, fully sustained, and fully nurtured from the very beginning. So it's important to understand this. But what makes Ethiopia so important is that as the African moved and began to travel across Africa, it was here in Ethiopia that in the development of the mind, the pineal gland began to really sit in its proper place in the, in the brain. And as this began to occur the African in this region began to develop higher forms of thinking, began to coordinate mathematics, began to coordinate astronomy, began to coordinate a number of different things that would later become what we today call rocket science. Although we think it happened today, it happened many thousands of years ago in the early development of humanity. Because if it had not been for this thinking, we would not have the thinking that we have today. So Ethiopia becomes very important in terms of understanding this. Looking at the gorilla, the only place we find gorilla is in the Virunga Mountains. The same way the only, in the early part, you will not find any other form of life in terms of humanity in any other part of the world except for in Africa, the two Australopithecine strands and Homo habilis
0: now the Omo River is that where the first cultures oldest cultures seem to
1: develop now I have I have an attraction to the Omo River not just because it uh, because of what I believe it nurtured but because of the sound that it creates Omo which is a very important word in the development of the mind itself because um, is a very important sound in terms of the development of the psyche. But the Omo River I'm very attracted to because this was a pathway. And when I get my first trip into Ethiopia, I've not yet been there, but I greatly, I really look forward to going because I want to do research on the Omo River because it is here that you can see a pathway that goes from Kenya into Ethiopia, which becomes a guideway into where you're going. And you can see a number of different things, particularly when you get to a place in northern Kenya and southern Ethiopia. And I want to be careful when we talk again, because all of these different names that we have for Africa is 1885. Europe carved up Africa in the Berlin Conference and gave this name here, gave that name here, and they made man-made boundaries. People of African descent made natural boundaries. In other words, rivers separated nations. Mountain ranges separated nations. Not how much gold is in an area, or how much oil is in an area, or how much resources is in an area. So what we have to look at in terms of the Omo River and looking at the development of astronomy and a number of different ideas is when you get to a place that is known as Tunga which is in the northern part of Kenya, you begin to see a number of astronomical ideas coming about that later would lead to why Africans would build pyramids. Because in the Morotonga, you see steles. Being built. There's a Namuratunga 1 and Namuratunga 2. Dr. Ivan Vansutima has a book. It's called Blackson and Science. And there is a piece on, the, uh, which he calls the ar- archaeo-astrological relevance of Tunga. There's Namuratunga 1 and Namuratunga 2. And when these researchers went into Tunga, they found it very interesting the way in which the, uh, they, were, they they weren't quite steles. They, they were rock pillars. They, they were Flanted in different ways that people would say, well, why don't they just stand them up straight? Why don't they do it a certain way? But you see them angled in different and very interesting ways. The indigenous population of, of that area told the researchers, well, if you find that interesting, we have a related Area Tonga 2, that is about 210 kilometers to the north. When they went up there, they noticed that there was a direct relationship between Nomura 2 and Nomura 1. Now, Nomura Tunga 1 is a burial ground, but Nomura 2 is not. However, the pillars and the cattle brands that they call cattle brands, which I would really rather call them astronomical writings... They found that there was a relationship between the way the pillars were in Tunga 2 and the way they were in the Tunga 1. And what happened was, is that they were lines of sights to seven different stars and constellations. Sirius being one, Aldebaran being another, uh, Cephas being another. There's a number. So, and it dates back to what would be called the Old Kingdom of ancient Kemet. Which means that while Kemet, and again, what Dr. Clark is teaching us, you see, we can't get caught up in Kemet. While I respect and honor our ancestors here, all of Africa is great. So we've got to not just look at Kemet, but look at what all of Africa is doing. So what we see, and it's also true, you have a Kerma civilization, you have equivalent civilizations existing in Ethiopia at the same time that the Kemetic dynasties were existing so it is important that when we begin to look at this we don't get to see Egypt is important in our history because that is where Europe and the Eurasian was introduced to Africa But to African people, what's so very important is that while greatness was going on in Kemet, greatness was going on in in Ethiopia, greatness was going on in Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania, greatness was going over in Chad and Niger, you can go across the African continent. Along with those Africans that migrated out, Ethiopia seems to be the place where they fanned to the west. They did continue north, but they fanned across through Sudan, Chad, Niger, Mali, and created the civilizations that would give birth to the Moors. So now we see that there is a direct relationship to Ethiopia, to the Moors, to Europe, to us today.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about early Ethiopian and some of those early civilizations, if we can, that would parallel uh, uh, that would um, uh, come about at the same time or uh, before uh, the pre-dynastic uh, period. Absolutely, you know, because
1: uh, and, and sure, and the evidence is there. Nod and sure. And it's so very important that as we look at Ethiopia and we look at things like the ring tumulus, which would later give rise to the pyramid structure, and the other kinds of pieces of information that show that Africans were tracking the sun, really what was happening, it's like equivalent to here, like here in the Bronx if I was trying to see something up in the sky and let's say up in this area it rained very heavy, but let's say in New Jersey there was it was clear sky and to get a better sight I would say come on Minister Brown, let's you and I go over so we can get a better look at things we would pick up our things and move that's what we did in Africa Ethiopia has a very serious rainy season I mean it has very serious rains, when the rains come down in, in Ethiopia, the rains come down, and Because of that, there are cloudy skies. There are times when you cannot observe the sky. So Africans in this area said, well, this is not a good location to stay. Let's see if we can go someplace else that has a better line of sight. So Africans would take the knowledge that they had already gained and take it up north and later go to Kemet and Kemet being a very dry area with very little rain became an area that had wonderful lines of sights to the skies. Not just that, in rainy areas you can't really preserve your materials the way you would like to so many of the documents and it's not being talked about today but our future generations and our young Africans of tomorrow are going to bring this information out. That's one thing for sure. But I am sure that in terms of the information that's coming out in terms of the science and the math, a lot of the documents that were formulated in the lower, central, eastern parts of Africa were sent to Kemet to be preserved. And why not? Because they were all related. So many of the documents and, and the concepts of writing and all that did not be was not created in Kemet. It was just well preserved in Kemet. It's like if, if I have certain advantages here in New York as opposed to New Jersey, what I'll do is create what I need to do here and then take it to New Jersey for preservation. As Dr. Clark teaches us, you know, after the Africans got their program together, they then took the show on the road. And it's important that we understand this because a lot of people will argue that everything was developed here but you cannot because even Meduneta which is called hieroglyph seems to have been born in Egypt all of a sudden. Again, no one created anything. What were, it was brought into Kemet from another land, and of course the Nubians being the descendants of the Ethiopians, and the Ethiopians then being related to the Kenyans, Ugandans, and the Tanzanians, there is, as Dr. Diop teaches us, a continuity and structure to all of this knowledge, and it's important that when we look at research that we don't, that is why Egypt or Kemet is called a mystery, it's not a mystery to folk who look at it the way we look at it. It is very clear, it is very sensible, as to why Chemid, uh, Chemites would build pyramids here. Because you can see the beginnings of the thought process down in Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania, and you can see pathways, not just the Rift Valley, not just the Happy Valley, but you also have river systems that brought this knowledge across boats. And the Omo River becomes so important because the Omo River is directly connected to Lake Rudolph, which is one of the Great Lakes regions.
0: Now, uh, when you said that the... Uh, um this knowledge came from other lands I mean I want you to be specific are you talking about Europe
1: no I'm talking about Africa I'm talking about Ethiopia I'm talking about Tanzania Uganda Kenya I'm even going south into Mozambique I'm talking about Zambia I'm talking about a number of different South African countries that as Africans migrated this way they also migrated south as Dr. Diop and other anthropologists and historians have taught us I'm specific when I talk about land I'm talking about African land because at this time there was only one people on earth living on one continent, which was Africa and African people. Europeans did not exist 60,000 years ago. They were not on Earth 60,000 years ago. I would dare... I am stretching it conservatively by saying that Europeans and Asians existed no more than 30,000 years ago. And it was because of the Ice Age and Africans moving into the northern climates above the 51st parallel that would then create the depigmentation process in the African that would create the European in the very first place.
0: So you're saying that that the Europeans... Are Africans?
1: Europeans are Africans. Every human being is an African. That's why I call them European Africans and Asian Africans and African Africans. All humanity is Africans. All life came out of Africa. And if you go back three and a half million years, which is a conservative number, you will find no one on Earth of human background except in Africa, very dark, very curly hair, very broad nose and thick-lipped.
0: Well, how did they get to be white?
1: they moved into this northern region and as they moved into this northern region they then began to change complexion let me change maps What we are talking about is the fifty-first parallel, which is approximately, the fifty-first parallel would be approximately going right across here, which cuts Europe in half. Right around in this area here is about the fifty-first parallel. Africans, as we said before, Australopithecus robustus, Australopithecus gracile, Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Homo sapien, Homo sapiens sapien. Homo sapien sapien moving out of Africa, moving up into this area during the Ice Age, worm Ice Age.
0: In what period of time? Was that?
1: We're talking about, well, there were four different Ice Ages. There was the Guns, there was the Mindel, there was the Riss, and there was the worm. We are only concerned with the worm glaciation because it is only at that point in time, chronologically, that Africans are in this part of the world. Because all the other times Africans are still down here, so they never really experienced an ice age because there was no human beings up here. So as Africans coming out of this area moved up into the northern climates, what occurred was a change of climate for one thing but also a devastating ice age where temperatures went to what some people say is 2,000 degrees below zero, remaining that way for thousands of years. It wasn't like they had seasons, they had no seasons, and at times they didn't see the sun for hundreds of years because of the heavy cloud cover and because of the other th- destruction that happened within the areas of, uh, of the uh, atmosphere. So Africans finding themselves in, in this area, up in the mountains, retreated into the mountains and the first thing that they would do, of course, in the cold, as we all do, is put on clothes, along with going inside caves. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the problem. Approximately 85 to 90 percent of the vitamin D that we create in our body, good for strong bones and strong teeth and all the rest of the things that are good for calcium, strengthening of the backbone and all of the other, the jet column, as the chemites would have called it, is produced by the relationship that the human being has with the sun. In this region, when we lock ourselves... First of all, the sun's not out, so we're losing sunlight. We're lacking vitamin D. Not just that, but we put clothes on, which the little sunlight that does come in stops the sun from penetrating. This dark complexion becomes a detriment as opposed to a savior. In hot climate, this is natural suntan lotion. The coming together of the carbon atoms protects the skin from the harmful rays of the sun coming in you have UVA, UVB and UVC some of the UV rays, ultraviolet rays never get to the earth but those rays that do sometimes become very harmful to the organic life if it's too much what happened was is that with the lack of the sunlight and with the dark complexion there were very serious problems occurring in the human body so nature loves us whether we realize it or not, whether we care about ourselves or not, nature loves us and nature will take care of us whether we take care of ourselves. So what happened was that this dark complexion, thick-lipped, broad-nosed, curly-haired African, in order to survive in this cold climate, had two choices. Either they could find a dietary substitute for vitamin D, which today they call milk. It's terrible for us, wonderful for them. You either find a, a substitute for vitamin D or You depigment yourself. The African chose the latter because the African did not know where in his environment, where in her environment, she or he could draw vitamin D. Therefore, the African depigmented itself from a very dark complexion to a very light complexion in order to survive. Becoming European was a blessing, for had we not depigmented ourselves, we would have died. But nature has it so that we depigmented ourselves and then we then were able to survive in this area. Any, look, at the, look at the gorilla and look at the polar bear. You're not going to find a polar bear in Africa and you're not going to find a gorilla in a cold region. Why? Because the nature of the sun mandates that you cannot have a, a substance such as a polar bear in a hot region. That is why we know that nothing could have been born in Europe Nothing could have been born in a cold climate Because life doesn't come from cold And if you don't believe it, today is January It's January out there and everything is dead The only reason why we are alive is because we have sense enough to know How to come in from the cold and how to get ready for the warm weather But if we stood out there and didn't have a place to, to, to shield ourselves We too would die eventually So this African, in this region, depigmented itself over thousands of years. Now research shows us that 16 generations, now I don't know how many years, some people say a generation is 20, some say 25, and some say 30. Research says that 16 generations in a cold climate can make a dark complexion turn light complexion. But if you think that's phenomenal, just look. The summertime, we all had tans. No matter how dark you are, you can get darker in the sun. But what happened now, January? We all get lighter. That's right. Now, over thousands and thousands of years, imagine this process occurring when there is no sun. You see, we can get back to ourselves in the summertime. We can get back to ourselves in late spring. But imagine a situation where we never had hot weather. Imagine a situation where we never could be able to get the benefits of the sun over thousands of years if we can depigment if we depigment ourselves in a couple of months from a dark complexion tan to a lighter complexion dark person imagine what we would do over thousands of years and what we're talking about some people would say that the worm glaciation occurred approximately a hundred thousand years ago a hundred thousand years ago and then going into what is known as an interstadial an interstadial is when it's a warming trend So there's a freezing and there's a warming. There's a freezing and there's a warming. Chances are Africans on the Homo sapien, Homo sapien sapien line moved into this area during an interstadial, not knowing that an ice age was about to come. They came at the end of an interstadial, and coming at at the end of an interstadial, they did not know. And the ice age originating in Greenland, then fans itself down, so they never really had a chance to know what was coming at them. And then, of course, the ice mountains occur. Now here's what we do with our young people to show them the effect of what happens to water when it freezes. We give them a glass and we pour some water in the glass and we draw a little line as to where that water ends. We then freeze that water and we bring it out, and what you'll notice is that the ice has risen above the line. So the waters that existed throughout this region rose and became ice mountains and prevented Africans from returning south. So the only choice they had was to either go into the mountains or fan themselves out across looking for a warmer climate. And everywhere that they went north, they got colder. So what they did is that they went deeper. And this is why you have the blondest of blondes, the bluest of blue eyes in the northern climate. And as you go down into the southern climate, you get the darker, the darker haired, the darker complexion, the wider nose, because there's a scientific principle. Heat expands cold contracts. So what became a very, what was a very thick nose, became an aquiline nose, because in the freezing cold, you inhale all that cold air, you literally freeze your entire breathing capacity, including your lungs. Therefore, the nose became aquiline and hair began to grow in the nose to prevent a lot of the snow and a lot of the cold air from coming in. The lips began to contract because of the cold. Even in the cold, when we walk in the cold, a lot of us perch our lips, because we're so- In perching your lips, you begin to make them smaller. And nature has it so that you're born, so that you don't have to really exert that much energy. When we look at people of Asian descent, we say that those are Chinese eyes. Those are not Chinese eyes. Because the reality of this is that I could take you into parts of Mali in Africa today that you will see African folk that look very Asian. There are parts of the people that live around the Sahel that if you looked at them, you would think that they were Chinese. You would think that they were Asian because of their eyes are so slanted. Look at Nelson Mandela. Look at his eyes. Why is his eyes like that? It is because he comes from a people known as the Khoisan. The Khoisan were a people who today are called derogatorily. They're not probably today called it, but they were called derogatory totten Bushmen. The Kalahari Desert, strong winds. Africans would slant their eyes because the winds would blow in their face. As the winds blew in their face, they would slant their eyes. Nature has it again. Nature loves us. So that when you are born into a system where you are forced to slant your eyes, as the generations continue, your generations, your descendants are born with slanted eyes so that you don't have to exert that muscular situation on your eyes. So, Asians being caught in the Caucasus Mountains. When you look at Asian people, you will notice that in this area here, you will notice that like the Japanese, the Chinese, Korean, all have different slants to their eyes. Some eyes go up, some eyes go straight back, and some slant down. It's according to where you were in the mountains, or where you were in terms of those ice winds blowing in your face. Now, it's 2,000 degrees. Now, we ain't talk about the wind chill factor yet. When you talk about the wind chill factor in terms of snow blowing in your face, you're going to squint your eyes. If you were in the part of the mountains where the winds blew up, your eyes would slant up. If you were in in the mountains where the wind blew right straight in your face, your eyes slanted back. And if you were where the wind blew down on you, your eyes slanted down. It is a biological, it's a genetic piece that we have to look at as a people. That is why we are all related as a people. Now, people say, well, how about the hair? Africans have a crown on their head. It's called very curly hair. Some people might call it kinky, some call it a number of different things. But the reality of it is, it's a blessing. Because if Africans did not have very curly hair, they would probably get scalp cancer. Because the the, the curl of the African hair is like the cosmos, it's elliptical. Curly hair on an African head is not circuitous, it is elliptical, so that when the rays of the sun come down on the head, it gets caught in the ellipse and then is sent into another direction. As we moved into the northern climate of the worlds, we no longer needed that curly hair, and what occurred was in the absence of the sun, oil was created, and oil created the ability for the hair to just limp or to get straight. And that is where the straight hair came from, out of the African. And as we look at this biological, climato- uh, climatological phenomenon, we then break down a lot of the mysteries that's out here today. This is why we can't get along. The reason why we can't get along is we don't know who we are. Europeans don't know that they're Africans. If we all were to double backtrack into our lives, we all would find ourselves on the African continent in the Great Lakes region. I don't care if you're Japanese, I don't care if you're Chinese, I don't care if you're Korean, if you're Russian, if you're French, if you're German, if you're Native American, whatever you are, You came out of Africa And you came out of the Great Lakes region
0: But why are we so different uh, Culturally And spiritually spiritually, Was there a penalty to pay I mean, did the Europeans pay a penalty? Uh, well,
1: I believe that in going into this region here, there is research done by Dr. Richard King when he deals with the pineal gland. The pineal gland is the seat of intelligence. The seat of intelligence is is formed like a grape. They say it looks like a grape. And what happens is that when exposed to extreme situations, this pineal gland becomes calcified. And the relationship that I've seen, the analogy that I've seen made is the difference between a grape and a raisin. A raisin is a grape that that has had its life force sucked out of it. And that is what happened in this region. Think about how you feel in the wintertime as opposed to how you feel in the summertime. In fact, there is even a disease that's called um, sad. It's called uh, Seasonal Affective Disorder. Mm-hmm. That in the summertime, people in, in the summertime people feel happy and up and everything is great. And wintertime people get depressed. You know, most suicides occur in the wintertime. Yes. And it's important that we understand that cold weather does have this impact. Now, go back now, please, and think in terms of this occurring over thousands of years. See, we live eighty years, we live ninety years, we blessed if we're one hundred and ten. Mm-hmm. Think of don't let's not get caught up in a century. Get caught up in millenniums. -hmm. Get caught up in thousands of years. Think of being in this extreme cold, in caves, no food, bad relationships, cannibalism, over thousands of years. And then the interstadial of the worm ice age comes and you begin to descend out of the ice mountains and you come back. What is your mindset going to be like? How are you going to feel? You're going to be angry. You're going to be jealous. You're going to be envious. Think of yourself in an area where you wake up to fresh air and the sun is out and you walk out into your backyard and a mango just falls into your hand or an orange is there or an apple is here or fruits are all around you. You're you're, you're going to get a feeling of sharing. Someone come to you and they say, I have a lot of fruit here and you have a lot of fruit there, but we don't have the same fruit. Why don't you give me some of yours and I'll give you some? Oh, sure. Why? Because you know your tree is going to give you more mango. You know that whatever nature is going to bless you, the sun will bless you by giving you more. And you it is natural. You know that it's going to come. You know it is natural. However, think in terms of being in an area where you don't know where you're going to get your next meal from if you're going to eat it all you're not going to have the kind of mindset that's going to be about sharing. It's going to be about taking. It's going to be about taking even if you have to preserve for when you know you might not have again. So these are the kinds of mindsets created. So it was a blessing to convert or as scientists talk, mutate into the European. But it had its penalties also. And I believe that all of the things that occurred once the African returned out of these regions as a light complexion or a European, as you will, a Eurasian, coming down in, looking at all that the world had to have, gave birth to people such as Columbus, such as Hitler, such as even some people we have amongst us today who will go unnamed. Let's. Um
0: Let's begin, now that we have that behind us, let's begin to look at that first great civilization, which would be back again in Ethiopia. Let's focus on Ethiopia uh, and the contributions of Ethiopia to, uh, to Egypt,
1: because there are, uh, Harada said that uh, the Egyptians said that they were the oldest, but the Ethiopians said they were the oldest. So let's begin to look at early development in Ethiopia clear evidence of the development of the civilizations in terms of just spirituality, law and government, writing, the development of thinking, agronomy or agriculture, the study of the sun, the stars, and its relationship to the earth, the development of a moral code, which later in Kemet would be called Ma'at. Because first of all, Ma'at is an ostrich feather. There are no ostriches in Egypt or in Kemet. Ostriches can be found, in fact, they used to get ostriches from Punt, which is today called Somalia. Mm -hmm. So, the only way that the Kemites could get to the ostriches in Somalia would be to go through Ethiopia you can only find ostriches in Ethiopia particularly in the areas of of where the uh, grass grows so it's important for us to understand that even in terms of a moral code in terms of their symbols came out of Africa the beard came from Punt and please understand see here's another thing Somalia is here Ethiopia is here but in ancient times Ethiopia and Somalia as a nation were one and the same Mm -hmm. In fact, it is recorded that Hatshepsut, the the great queen of the 18th dynasty, her cousin was on the throne in Punt. There was interrelationship constantly between these nations in this area. So you can see a, a sharing of culture, a sharing of knowledge, but most importantly, you see a growth of civilization and the sophistication of the civilization as it travels closer to Kemet. And that is the gift that Ethiopia gave. Not to mention in terms of just looking at the ancient faith systems. When you look at the closeness of Ethiopia to what is today called Saudi Arabia, in particularly Yemen, there is a a very serious relationship, a very long-range relationship between these two countries.
0: ...called
1: Yemen, uh, Ethiopia used to expect. Yes, in fact, um, Homer called this area, Saudi Arabia and India, he called that Eastern Ethiopia. Because the people look so much like the people of Ethiopia. He said the only difference was that the people on this side, this hair was straighter. Again, when you look at the relationship of where it is to the sun, remember when we talked about the oil and the relationship of the sun to the head, you can see why the hair would straighten, but the face stayed dark. So the relationship is there for us to understand how this could be. So you can see the relationship between here. So the faith systems coming up out of here. It is strongly believed as Menelik I when he returned back it is believed that he brought as his mother his mother the the story of the queen of Sheba going into um, uh, Cana uh, which today is called Israel With Solomon Giving birth to Menelik the I And he visiting his father Later in life And then returning back to Ethiopia It is believed It is said That he brought back with him The Ark of the Covenant It was here the reason Why it is believed That the Prophet Muhammad Blessings on that brother's name Would have sent Balal And all of his most trusted Uh, followers into Ethiopia to bring back the Ark of the Covenant to give uh, um, a sense of authority to this new faith system that would become Islam. It is important to know that Christianity came directly out of Ethiopia. When you look at the rock churches, the way in which they were built in the shape of crosses in the ground, not above the ground, in the ground, mm-hmm. when you look at the kind of phenomenon that's occurring all over, you can see that Ethiopia gave birth to a number of different things in terms of the development of the mind, the body, and the soul.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you're saying that, that, um, that this predated uh, Egypt, that the, the roots of the culture in terms of its government, its law, its spirituality, etc. Is in Ethiopia. Is there any primer evidence? Can we kind of put something together that will say yes? You can look at that and uh, de- make that determination. I mean, all of the gods that became, that these gods up here that you have, that are Egyptian gods, where are they in Ethiopia? Where is the root
1: of it? When you look at, for instance, the first essence that was called Bess, a very short stature, you can see Bess all throughout the concepts of Ethiopia. It is, it, it is in the stories. It is in the midst of this area, Ethiopia, Somalia, Kenya, Uganda. It is, it is in the structures of Ethiopia that you can see those things that predate. The writing of hieroglyphics, as we said earlier, was not born in Egypt. It was brought to Egypt and it's important that as it is being brought to Egypt that you understand that the animals that are depicted in many of the writings of Kemet cannot be found in Kemet for instance the lion all of that and first of all Egypt was the gift of happy in other words, Egypt at one point in history didn't exist it was just a marshland as, as the rivers flooded and as the waters moved here and silt from the blue Nile was brought up the waters receded, land remained Menes, coming from Nubia coming up into Kemet what he did is he had a strong irrigation project that put an elbow or a bend in happy that allowed Memphis to be created and that is why it was called Patar, Pata representing land or the land form, land mass. He put, a, he put an elbow in Happy that diverted the waters and then he dumped up uh, land onto the marsh and created what would become, today we call it Memphis. Or The evidence of this can be found in Ethiopia when you look at the symbols, when you look at the animals, when you look at the ideas that came forward, you can see a relationship between the two. The God, the concept of monotheism. It's very important to understand that while we have a great deal of respect for Akhenaten, it is important to understand he did not create Atenism. Because there is evidence that his mother, Queen Tai, had a temple built in Nubia, At a place called Atiye dedicated to Aten. His father, Amenhotep III, had a temple in a place in Nubia called Sedenga that was honoring Aten. The whole concept of monotheism coming up out of this region of Africa. And I want to be careful using the word Ethiopia because Ethiopia has become a specified geographical region. But at one time, Ethiopia was no, this continent would have been called Ethiopia.
0: And why was it called Ethiopia? Just clarify that, because the ancient name was... Because
1: the Greeks came in and Aethiop, Aethi, Ethiopia, Ethiopia means the land of the burnt faces. So Ethiopia is a Greek name, but I would be careful because I believe, etymologically speaking, linguistically speaking, our young African scholars are going to find Ethiopia and Ethiopia. Also, while it comes out of a Greek mouth, it came out of an African mind.
0: Okay.
1: So I want to be careful with those words and all these kinds of words because while I give credit to them for some things, it was born in an African mind. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, we, we were talking about the uh, primary evidence, which is so important. We were talking about the, uh, the uh, uh, animals and etc., which are not found in Egypt, but depicted, uh, are found in Ethiopia, and they're the symbols. Uh, very important. Are there other things can we elaborate on
1: that There's an, there, in terms of the mythologies now, another thing about primary source is that primary sources must be physical again, because of the weather, we have to be very careful because much can be destroyed. But what we do have that stays that, that shows clearly that Dr. Ben talks to us about is that just a whole structure of things that such as the ring tumulus, which gave birth to the concept of the, um, of the sundial is born in Ethiopia you can see it there you can see it in this region here it's born there the concept of triangles you see you can physically see structures that are built like like hills that are built like triangles you, uh, the the myth of Heru comes directly out of this concept the work that Homer did comes directly out of this I mean he visited Herodotus visited and he saw these the doctors the medicines all of the early Greek and Roman writers talk about Ethiopians being the longest lived of human beings and the most beautiful and they eat and the foods that they ate and the way in which they lived and the the way in which they developed themselves and the honesty that developed. The writings of a lot of the African writers, a lot of the writings of the Moorish writers, bringing back the philosophies of Ethiopia. The primary sources are in a lot of the visitors that went into Ethiopia and saw in Ethiopia how Egypt could have received this. The priesthood in Ethiopia for instance. The priesthood in Ethiopia was not as secret as, as it was in Kemet. In fact, it was It was believed that the laying on of hands was done by the female the matrilineal line because who better to know who is best to lead than those hands that rock the cradle so it's important to understand that the women the elder council of women would come together and elect the leader and it was open for anyone of greatness it just wasn't for uh, it just wasn't reserved for the son of the king or the son of the pharaoh or anything like that it was reserved for those who were the best at it but here because of the attacks from all different directions they had to close it up And so, they couldn't just let anybody get involved in the concept of becoming leader of the country, because who knows who might become leader of the country later on, if you have it here. But here in Ethiopia, very few people could ever even penetrate down into Ethiopia, particularly because of the mountainous region.
0: All right, but one would say, but you have all these huge temples and uh, great structures and pyramids and things in Egypt, but you don't find any of those uh, monuments or buildings of antiquity that would predate anything in, e- in Egypt.
1: But you, but, uh, that's true, but you have, the, uh, you have the precedent for it in Ethiopia you have the writings you have the astronomical lore you have the stories of how they looked up into Sirius you have stories of Ethiopians developing astronomical calendars again you've got to go back to the weather of Ethiopia the weather of Ethiopia makes it very difficult for anything to really be preserved because rain and particularly monsoons and the heavy kinds of rains that occur will not allow things to stay in place as they will in Egypt but the precedent or the beginnings or the thoughts of it can be found in Ethiopia and then of course you have the later pyramids of Ethiopia you have the constant movement of people up when um, Cleopatra was about to give up Egypt to Rome she sent her two sons into Ethiopia because she knew where to send her children every time there was an attack on Kemet Kemet would go back down into Sudan and Ethiopia so you have the concept that they knew where to go and then when every time whether it be the old kingdom the Middle Kingdom the New Kingdom or the 25th Dynasty which by the way is called the Kushite Dynasty or the Ethiopian Dynasty each one of them you see a thrust of African people coming up and rebuilding in a better sense what was there now if what was down here was not the precedent for here then you would not see this flow of greatness coming up you would rather see the flow of greatness going down which we don't see
0: Mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, Ethiopia Specifically, and if I, I, I want to do some comparisons with the Rock churches and the temples in Egypt, so let's look at the Rock churches and look at a little history around the Rock Hume churches first and and uh, your concept of what, why, how, when, what brought it about.
1: Christianity is an African concept. Many people believe that the Coptic church the Coptic Church coming out of Egypt, in fact, was an Ethiopic creation. That the language that is spoken in Ethiopia and the language that came to the Coptic Church was the vocalization of Meduneta. Because we do not believe that Meduneta was a vocalized language. It was a pictorial language. It represented... It's like if you go to Kennedy Airport and you see a picture of a man, no matter what language you speak from around the world, you know that's the man's room. So it doesn't say hombre... It doesn't say lom, it doesn't say man, it just has a picture of a man. You don't say that, you can't say that, you just know that. And that's what Meduneta was, it was pictographic. But to vocalize it, many people believe that it was the Ethiopian Coptic Church that vocalized the comedic Meduneta. Now, when you look at the development of Christianity, what we see is that Christianity was in the... was in its developing stages long before what we consider to be the birth of Jesus to Christ. That in fact that Africans were going towards this Christic revelation all the time. You had the Osirian uh, revelation, you had the Horian revelation or the Heruan revelation, and you had the Christic revelation. And all of them were moving up and all of them were tied into astronomy, all of them were tied into spirituality, but it was a sacred science. When you look at uh, the churches such as St. Lalibela, and when you look at a number of the other pieces that come into being, you see that Christianity in terms of, when you look at the work of William Leo Hansberry, who's done exhaustive work in terms of Ethiopia, uh, he has a book, it's called pillars in Ethiopian history. And chapter 4 of that book deals with interesting things of the relationship that Ethiopia had with Europe during the Crusades. He also deals with a king, Ezana, twin brothers Ezana and Shezana, one rule during the day and one rule during the night. So we see that in 325... AD, or after the Christian era, African folk were dramatically involved in the Christian church, giving it its document. In fact, the Greek Orthodox Church broke with the Roman Catholic Church because of the African-ness of the Greek doctrine. In other words, they believed, in terms of what we're looking at, and again, a lot of work more has to be done on this, that the the broke came between Constantine and the Greek church they the concept of the relationship of Jesus to Christ to God one believed the Greek believed the Greek Orthodox or the African Church believed that by the way during this time there was an African Militathus who was the Pope no one talks about Militathus but during this time Militathus was an African Pope and Constantine was the Roman Emperor and what happened was is that Constantine saw that this Christian Church was just too powerful These Africans were just too powerful. So if he couldn't beat them, he was going to join them. So what he did is he took over the... He tried to take over the church and he called what is known today as the Council of Nicaea together in approximately 332 A.D. after the Christian era. And at this meeting, he chased out all those bishops that didn't agree with him. And by the way, one of the bishops was an African by the name of Arius. Constantine chased Arius out of... This area of where this Nicaea was, where this conference was taking place, and Arius and his followers went into Europe. This African took other Africans and some Europeans and Eurasians with him into Europe. His followers were later called. Wouldn't Hitler turn over in his grave to know that the very race that he called the Aryan race was named after an African bishop that was chased out of Nicaea? For more information on that, there's a book out called Blacks Who Died for Jesus by Mark Hyman, where he has a chapter on Arius, the African bishop, chased out of the council of Nicaea because Africans said that Jesus the Christ was a man on earth who had been divinely blessed by God. That, in fact, this Jesus to Christ was not in the sense of what the Romans was trying to say, man, God, but that, in fact, was a man blessed with the Spirit of God who led the path of Maat and who would revolutionize the world. Because that didn't sit well with thinking people, What happened was, is that there was a split. The Greek Orthodox went one way, but what people will not tell you is that the Greeks were led to that split by the beliefs of the Ethiopians, who said from the beginning, in the story of Heru, that Heru was the son of the Divine Father, but that he himself was a divinely blessed person, that he himself had a God concept, that he was both man-God, and but that he was not the split that the Roman church tried to make of he was half man and half God in fact he was all man and all God and this is what the Ethiopians in terms of the Herion or the Heroin story were telling and that is where the whole concept of the Son of God came from was the concept that the Herion rise of the, the concept of God being God being blessed within man human man and woman and developing a path to live, which the Chemites call Maat. And when you look at the rock churches alone, when they were built, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, even before that, what's so important It goes back to Kemet is that these temples are believed to have been built on top of older temples. So, this concept was there for many millennium, and what Africans... Did then and what we do so well now is that we rebuild on what our ancestors left behind.
0: Can you say anything about that marvelous and magnificent structure, uh, the concept of digging down into the ground, and perhaps even why they get it?
1: It is it's, it's amazing how so much more work has to be done. We as a people have got to get... And I'm sure that there are those out there who can answer that question far more succinctly than I can. But when I look at it in terms of just... You know, why would, we bur- why would we build a church underground? Why would we bury our dead underground? Why would we face certain walls towards certain cardinal points and cardinal directions? It is clearly because we believe that as above, so below. That there was a relationship between the inside of the earth, the layer of the earth, and what's above the earth. And that's the form of the Ankh. When you look at the whole concept, you can see that we there's always we're always relating we're always creating metaphors between what we know and what we don't know in order to get to where we need to go and what we're looking at in terms of going down in the ground is a magnificent concept because it would have been so e- so much easier to build on top of the ground. Why go underground except to believe that there was something very sacred about inside of that ground? There was something very important in terms of the way the stars hit certain places. In Kemet, they would not build unless there was a relationship between that sacred spot and a sun or a star. Native Americans also have that concept. They just didn't build anywhere. That is why in so many parts of the world today where people just put up buildings to be putting up building there's going to be a very serious um, response to that as time goes on because you just can't build anything any place so when you look at uh, a church such as Lalibela built by who today is called Saint Lalibela and to look at the whole concept of what he, what he developed in that church and what those that loved him and developed around him did was that they built it in the ground, but not only did they build it in the ground, but they important to understand. We see in Meduneta, we see the the, the cross, the, the cross is a distinct symbol. If you turn the, the cross sideways to make an X, it is a symbol for community, the community of self. That's what Kemet, that's what ends Kemet, K-M-T, and then you have the symbol, which is like a, a cross in a circle, which is like the crossing over. That is why you have a saw with his arms crossed over this way, coming to directly out of Ethiopia because that's where the story of Asar comes from the story of Heru today our children turn on television and they look at Hercules if they just got rid of the C, the L the E and the S they would have the word Heru Hercules is the word for Heru, the hero, the solar god, the solar energy, the one who has to fight different wars. That's why Hercules had to fight all these evil things. But when the Greeks get it, they so contaminated and turned the story upside down that, well, what a lot of people say is that Ethiopians brought, brought gods Brought gods down to earth and made them. I'm sorry, this is the other way around. That the Ethiopians brought humanity up to God, and that the Greeks brought the God down to earth and gave them very low personalities. When you look at Greek mythology, they were a group of rather vicious people. And if you just look at Hercules today, uh, they're not very nice people. When you look at when you look at Hercules today, there's a god that they talk about, Hera, who is against Hercules. But Hera, in fact, is. Hetheru when you get into the African concept then if you get into Islam Hetheru or Hathor is Hagar when you look at the relationship between Hetheru coming in here being the mother of God mother of the consciousness mother of the son and then you have Hagar who is the mother of Ishmael and Ishmael being the birth of uh, the Arabic race and Muhammad, blessings on that brother's name, happens to be a descendant of Ishmael, a descendant of Hagar, and Hagar, of course, was a, was a, was a Kemet, was a Kemite.
0: Now, excellent. Can, can you draw uh, some similarities to uh, the Rakim churches and maybe those temples along the Nile? Uh, Luxor, uh, I mean, you know, all some of those great temples. Sure. Any comparison, any uh, relationship, uh, any likeness of that?
1: When I viewed the tape, I noticed the chambers. Even when you go into the cathedrals of today, you will notice that there is a gradation as to where you are in that church, in the relationship to how close or how far you can get. When you look at how the rock human churches were constructed you will notice that the sanctuaries that the certain uh, 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 walls or the windows where the light comes in is facing certain directions you will notice that in terms of the rock human churches that when you look at the four corners of the church they are on cardinal points when you look at the development of the entire because they come out of an astronomical because always looking up because in, in looking up, you're looking up at the heavens, and you're looking up at the cosmos, so therefore you're drawing upon this divine power coming down. The way in which the churches, there is a direct relationship between the rockium churches of Ethiopia, there is a reason why everything is where it is, to the point where even of the cathedrals and the churches built today, throughout Europe and America and around the world, there are only certain places where choirs can sing, in the building, because of the relationship of tonality and music to where it is being sent out in terms of the, the community at large, in terms of the church. There is a direct relationship between the concepts, the metaphor. See, this is what we have to do as a people. We have to get underneath the metaphor. In France, there is, uh, when, when Africans first went into Europe and brought this concept into Europe, they brought, and they built a church in what is today known as France. And they called it Père Isis, P-E-R, I-S-I or ast. In Ethiopia, there is a very important plant that's called the ansete or the asat plant, which is used for medicinal purposes. It's used to eat. It's used for bandages. It's used for a number of different things. It's called the ansete plant. It's called the asat plant. And this whole concept of being that that one and everything that can do everything is like mother. And that's where asat or Aset came from well Aset was then changed to Isis and brought into Europe by the Moors and by other Africans throughout the the millennia and this was called Perisis Per within the Kermetic language meaning house Isis meaning Aset or house of Isis house of the lady house of the great lady when the Europeans took over France and in that area they tore that church down and they built another one up And today is called Notre Dame, and Notre Dame means Our Lady, and where is Notre Dame? In Paris, which is what they call it, Paris is now today called Paris, and in Paris there is Notre Dame, or the House of the Great Lady, Our Lady, Notre Dame. So, not only is there a relationship between the rock hewn churches of Ethiopia to Kemet, not only is there a relationship between the rock churches and what down here in terms of this area here, in terms of Monomotapa in South Africa, you can relate it to structures in Central Africa and West Africa because, you know, Mansa Musa, when Mansa Musa was so impacted by his brothers, you see, a lot of folk think that Mansa Musa went all the way over into here, Uh, to go and to do his hajj yes he did do his hajj and he brought back an Egyptian or a Chemite back an African back into his land to build and he today is buried in a pyramid in Mali yet we don't know this Mansa Musa who happened to be one of the greatest kings now while Mansa Musa was going east his brother Abu Bakari the second was coming to America and that's the evidence of life in America you see the Marinki the Empire was going around the world one brother went east one brother went west there's a gentleman by the name of Richard Haklut, who wrote in his findings it's called the Hakluyt uh, Chronicles he wrote that Afri- um, that Europeans themselves wrote down that they they passed Africans returning to Africa while they were coming to America he was a 15th century traveler who recorded this. So this is not something that we're just making up. His name is Richard Hakluyt and you can, find it in, you can find this information in the Hakluyt Chronicles in London. So there is a direct relationship not just between the rock churches of, of Ethiopia in Africa. You can see it transcend itself to all of the great cathedrals in the United States and you can go down the 50th Street on 5th Avenue and see the same relationship in St. Patrick's Cathedral.
0: In terms of its uh, spiritualness, um, have you have you read or considered what it would actually take to hew those stones out of the living rock? Spiritual.
1: Wow, that's that's a very good question. And because I speak English, I don't think I could pop, uh, probably do it the way I'd like to do it, but I would say that the same dynamics that could build a rocking church like that built pyramids in Kemet. ...about
0: spiritually, the concept, not the concept, but... But what it would really take, what does it mean? Because, you know, uh, that's the eighth wonder of the world. People say this is the eighth wonder of the world because they cannot fathom uh, this being done, uh, in particular in the length of time that is uh, reported that it was done in. And if you've ever been in those churches, one would have to have in his head all of the measurements and, and everything to go up because when it's finished, it looks just like any church that was put together in terms of its uh, architecture, yes. Every area, yes. and so forth. Yes, yes. Spiritually, what do you think it took? Uh,
1: I, I think it took absolute divine guidance. It, it took an understanding of the cosmos because who said that after you built it, it wouldn't fall in, inside? They had to have, they, they would have to have had... Well, let's go from outside in to understand how really structurally they did this. First of all, inside, let's just begin, they had to have been divinely guided to do this. There had to have been something divinely guided to make them do this because... To build it above ground. Why go inside the ground? Why go deep? And they would have to have had such a high level of understanding of the earth to know that once they built it, it wasn't going to cave in. They would have to have understood the structure of what they were building it from, that the rock, they would have to have understood the the, 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 the composition of the rock itself. They would have to have understood how long it could last. For, for the centuries that that church and other churches have lasted, in Ethiopia, they would have had to have had such an understanding of the earth for over thousands of years that they would have to have just built it with the kinds of tools. What kind of tools... Okay, they build the church as one phenomenon, but they had to build the tools that would build the church, which was equally as dynamic uh, an accomplishment. So, the tools that they built, they would have to have known, would have to have been so precise, but what tools did they use to build the tools? They would have to have had such a high level of consciousness of the cosmos. And so, to touch the spiritual piece to this, they would have to have been divinely guided. And when you look at the churches themselves and you're walking along and then you see the size of the church you know this is not like a castle in the sand this is a magnificent structure that to me is equivalent to St. Patrick's Cathedral underground what was the knowledge that they had to open up the earth in that pattern to then build that church in the shape of that cross it was such a phenomenal mindset that would develop it but more importantly it was a love of God and that's a key in all of this African folk have such a love of God and you know nobody put their name on it they call it Lalibela they have names for it but when you look at it while Lalibela may have commissioned the work you, you have to look at the person that did it You don't necessarily see their names in in big lights and because they did it in the glory of God. Can you imagine today as doing something and not putting our name on it? All of these factors in itself show a very selfless, a very intelligent, a very just people. The same people that Homer and Herodotus spoke about in their writing. Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Younger, Strabo. All of these different uh, uh, individuals talk about how just and how wonderful, how handsome and beautiful, how how loving and caring these Ethiopians were. And so it's important to understand, and then when you look at us as the descendants of these Ethiopians, what we have put up with, you can see our spiritualness, you can see our stick-to-itiveness, you can see our ingenuity, you can see our George Washington Carver, and our Malcolm X, and our, our Harriet Tubman, in the rock churches, because the same spiritual divine guidance that built those rock churches Emancipated Harriet Tubman. Emancipated Paul Robeson. And even has brought us together, Minister Brown and myself, to sit here and to talk about the glory of our ancestors. It is divine guidance. And I believe that in time there is a direct connection between us and the Rockhune churches and the temples of Kemet. We just now have not yet woken up to make this connection. And this is why I'm so happy to be able to talk about this because I now see myself as part of this continuity because in my study of Ethiopia and in terms of what I have looked at in terms of Ethiopia, I have been awed by what is in Ethiopia. And it is too bad that the great masses of our people don't understand Ethiopia. It is a shame that the Pope does not understand the role that Ethiopia has played in the fact that had Ethiopia not taken the lead role in some of the parts of the Crusades, although that was brother against brother, because many of the Ethiopians were fighting their own Moorish brothers and sisters to defend a papacy that really has not been and was never theirs yet they were the birthright of it and so all of this is coming to fruition now and we are now as a people looking back Sankofa the bird that looks back in order to find its future and it's important that we know this and understand the kind of spirituality that would go into this because long before the rock human churches existed the spirituality was there and as the spirituality became stronger, the need and the desire to build a church such as that, to begin to build such as uh, the temples. and And I'm telling you something else. I'd be willing to bet you that if you go deeper into Ethiopia, you'll find other churches built just as magnificently as those. Maybe not espousing Christianity, but there is but one love, as Rasta says. There is but one spirituality, as Dr. Rosalind Jeffries teaches us. There is only one spirituality. There is only one universe. And that's where the word universe came from. And it was believed amongst Africans, which later civilizations took on, that to really get a sense of the universe, you have to study this one word, Atum. And once you get the one word, the universe... You get this universe in a complex of buildings, educational buildings, which today we call universe cities, which is a derivation of the word universities.
0: Let me... Uh, I wanted to, to look at some of those temples because I know you have done some studies on the temples in Egypt, um, and, and I want to show some of those as I do these rock churches for its dynamics. Can you give us some insight to what those temples mean to the foundation of human values, human principles and their godhood, their understanding of universal principles that ground us to a cosmos and an understanding of God.
1: Sure. You know, as, as, as you said that, I, I thought of, of how the Chemites looked at the world coming into being. Nun, Pata, Atum. And what I find to be so very interesting is that as, as you look at this and you look at the rock hewn churches underground, and you can almost see that Nun is the waters mm-hmm. in the middle of the earth. And rising up out of these waters comes the rock human churches, but then on top of the earth where its level is where we as humanity walk in our consciousness when you look at the principles of ma'at and when you look at the principles of those of Ethiopia when you look at the role that Africans have played in history you can get a sense of the deeper understandings of what would bring people to develop that and what the kemites called it was ma'at and as we said before the ostrich feather can only the ostrich can only be found in this part of Africa and they ...brought them from Somalia. That was one of the things that they imported from Punt... ...was the ostrich. They imported baboons. They, Im- they imported a lot of different animals out of this area. And when you begin to look at that... And of course, ma'at is the ostrich feather. It's symbolized by the ostrich feather. So, the key is to understand how very important it is... ...to understand ma'at righteousness, justice, and balance, the ability for society to balance itself in its oneness, to be able to return back into itself, that you look at the ostrich again coming up out of this region here, this northeastern region, the horn of what they call, the, the, they call it the horn of Africa, and you begin to understand that the universe is like an ostrich also, in that an ostrich, when it runs, it runs in a zigzag way. It's, it's egg is in an elliptical shape, just like the universe is. And as Africans looked up into the skies, they looked within, they saw that there was a metaphor that united what was above to what was below. And what they attempted to do was to balance it. And that's why I said Africans brought God, and they brought humanity up to God in order to understand the Godhood. In many African faith systems, while it may not be said outright, They never prayed inside to a god. They never prayed outside to a god because the fundamental principle was that all human beings were gods on earth and that within us was the concept that we ourselves could rise to that level of godhood if we followed a particular path of righteousness, of justice, of truth. And this was depicted by the ostrich feather. Dr. Rosalind Jeffries taught us that the the feather is used in a very interesting way and we could also relate this to Native Americans and the way in which they use feathers but that the feathers itself is such that if you put a feather in your hand and if you hold it too tight you'll squash it Sometimes you're afraid of truth. You're afraid that it's going to get out of your hands. You don't trust yourself to be truthful. Therefore, you hold tight. And sometimes when you hold too tight, while you may be truthful, you're squashing the truth. At the same time, on the other side of the pole, if you hold it too lightly, the slightest wind can blow the truth or the feather out of your hands. So truth is the kind of principle that you've got to hold just so tightly but just so loosely so that it doesn't get out of your hands. And it's important that as we develop these concepts of spirituality that we understand that to African folk there is but one truth. And that this one truth finds itself in many fold, in many different ways. And as we begin to develop our new definition of ourselves, the second principle of Kwanza, Kujicagulia, that we will begin to redefine what spirituality really is, because spirituality is universal, religion is selective. It doesn't make a difference if you're Rosicrucian, if you are Buddhist, if you are Zen Buddhist, if you are Christian, Muslim, or Jew, there is but one faith system. There is but one word, and that word is truth. And out of that truth, there comes everything else that becomes the moral code. Out of the moral code comes the civilization or the intermingling of people. Out of the intermingling of people comes society, and out of society comes civilization. Out of civilization comes technology, which represents how you respect your civilization, and then you get right back in to your Godhead because what you create is a reflection of how you feel about the greater being that is all around
0: us. Booker, I think that one of our greatest gifts to the world is our spirituality. And I think our most misunderstood uh contribution about who we are and what we are and about our cosmology and how we see the world is the way we relate to the world and you can only understand that through spirituality someone once asked me I don't, you know if the black man was in charge if he was the president if black folk was ruling the world I don't think it would be a better place to, uh, to live, I mean look at Africa And look at America. Here we got cars, we got bathrooms, we got running water, we got hot. I mean, we're mastered nature. Hey man, don't tell me black folk could have done a better job because when I look at Africa, I don't see it. What do you have to say? Look at the Moors.
1: And if you look at the Moors, you'll understand. The book edited by Dr. Ivan Van Sertema called The Golden Age of the Moor. Or you can look at Stanley Lane Poole's work on the moors, the story of the moors. And you will understand that when Africans in the year 710 A.D. went into Spain, again they called it Al-Andalus. Today it's called Spain and Portugal or the Iberian Peninsula. They brought into Europe running water, air conditioning, heat, soap, foods, clothes, music, Moral. In fact, a great deal of, in, of many individuals in Al-Andalus supported the African explorers because of the barbarity of the Visigothic kings. When African moors in Granada and Seville and Cordoba lived in plush palaces, European monarchs were living in barns. Africans brought to Europe everything that we now have so Africans not only could do it we could do it better and it's important to understand that you may be looking at an America with cars that create pollution you can look at tall buildings when the steel is put in the water creates air pollution you can talk about sky travel that every time a plane or a rocket goes up it creates destruction in the atmosphere you can call that progress, I wouldn't When you look at the African world, you look at a world based on nature. And just like I know the sun will set and rise between today and tomorrow, Africans knew that their civilization would rise and fall the same way. It's important to understand that Africa gave the world everything that we have today. We have built upon that. It's important to understand that there is nothing that exists today that Africans or people of color have not had a hand in. You cannot count to one you cannot count from one to ten without thanking the Dravidian Moors for having brought that. Our number system, although it's called Hindu Arabic, in fact is Dravidian Moorish. It is not Hindu Arabic. It is Hindu it is Dravidian Moorish because the Hindus got it from the Dravidians and the Arabs got it from the Moors. It's important to understand that we will see what the future holds. Every civilization has its rise and fall. In Africa, Africans ruled Europe. In fact, it was Napoleon that said that Africa begins in the Pyrenees. The Pyrenees is in southern France. It's important to understand that Napoleon in 1798 went to Egypt ...with approximately 172 of his most intelligent individuals... ...along with an army. Upon returning back from there... ...Europe flourished. In fact, a few years later... ...a man by the name of Count Volta... ...received an award for creating a battery. Yet we see direct evidence of him learning how to build the battery... ...by looking at the Jed column of ancient Egypt. You want more information? A brother by the name of Nur Men wrote a book entitled, The African Origins of Electromagnetism. We're living an illusion. And as long as we live this illusion, we will never know and we will never be able to go back to what we could do. I believe we're devolving. I believe that we are going backwards in time. I believe that the way in which we feel towards each other is going to create the kind of situation that's going to catapult us forward. I've often asked, how thick does the glass have to get? in the bank before we understand we're having a very serious problem. The glass is getting thicker. People are moving away from each other. Bridges are falling. Planes are crashing. Water is killing. Bacteria is greater now than ever before. We're sicker than ever before. The first successful caesarean birth occurred in the middle 1800s when European doctors went to Uganda and witnessed their caesarean birth. The European doctors brought that method back to Europe and Europe had its first successful cesarean birth. If you don't believe me, look at Charles Finch's work and look at the picture that was drawn by the European who watched the Ugandans during the cesarean birth. These are facts. I'm not emotional, I don't dislike anybody, I'm not saying this in a sense of superiority or inferiority, I don't believe in that. I don't believe I'm superior because I'm African, but I believe that I am supreme because I know who I am. I don't measure myself against another human being, I measure myself against myself. So I hope to be a better person tomorrow than I was today. And I pray to be a better person today than I was yesterday. And that is what African folk, yes I'm competitive, but I compete with myself. I don't compete with other people, therefore I don't worry about what my partner has because I appreciate His greatness because I may shine. See, everybody can't be sunshine. Sometime you've got to be moonshine. Because the moon doesn't have a light. The moon's reflection. Moonlight is a reflection of the sun on the moon. Someday it's my day. Someday it is my day to shine. Other days, it's someone else's turn to shine. But hopefully, if I position myself right in that person's life, their light will shine on me. As an African people, we understood this. Therefore, what was good for one was good for the community, and what was good for the community was good for everybody. This is the kind of society that we've got to get back to. When we think of the things that are happening all around us today, we've got to understand that a change has got to come. You'll either be a part of it, or you won't. They laughed at Noah for 40 years. The brother was building the boat. He said a flood was coming. Everybody laughed at him because the sun was out. But he prophesied that there was going to be a flood. Marcus Garvey and Malcolm X and the Honorable Elijah Muhammad all prophesied that there was destruction coming. And everybody laughed at them. They criticized them. They continue to today. Yet the very words that they spoke back then are coming to fruition now. Those who were smart enough to build their boat, to get ready for what was coming, will withstand what's coming. And those that don't, will not. But it doesn't take a lot of people to create a nation. So either you're part of it or you're not. My question is, are you going to miss the boat?
0: Ethiopian point
2: of view. All right.
0: Um, we are here at uh, the University of Addis Ababa. We are in front of the uh, Department of um, Ethiopian Studies, I believe. I have the pleasure, uh, Institute of Ethiopian Studies, and I have the pleasure of being with uh, Professor Tedessa Tamrat. Professor, would you give us a uh, correct spelling of your name, and would you then proceed uh, to give us an overview of Ethiopian history?
2: My, my name is uh, spelled... Uh, uh, the first name is the second name is Amrat, mm-hmm. um, I, I think the the best um, point of departure in uh, a survey, in a brief survey of the history of Ethiopia, particularly for our, our um, overreach, international connections, the understanding of Ethiopia history abroad, uh, particularly by uh, African Americans, Uh, people of the diaspora, from the world of uh, Africa. Uh, I think the most important important factor would be to come to grips with uh, the name Ethiopia. What do we mean by the name of Ethiopia? And how uh, does it come to be the appellation for just one country? which we now call Ethiopia, my country. Uh, I think uh, if we understand this uh, properly, we will really be able to come to um, better understanding what uh, the history of Ethiopia is. Now, the word Ethiopia, uh, when it was first used, By the ancients. Essentially, it is a Greek word. used by the Greeks of the 9th century before Christ And when they started to use it, they started to use it with a specific term. Specific term which applied to dark complexion people. Mm. People who were living. Occupy the whole continent immediately to the south of Egypt. Egypt is which the the Greeks have established long term And Egyptian history, Egyptian culture, Egyptian concepts have also started to influence the world view of the Greeks to some extent and uh, when the greeks started to talk about ethiopia in that time they also connected it with an ancient egyptian term an ancient egyptian geographical term uh, which was called Punt. Punt. Mm-hmm. Punt for the egyptians the whole area of the northeastern part of Africa, including the Arabian Peninsula uh, the whole area of the Red Sea, on both sides of the Red Sea, mm-hmm. the Horn of Africa and the, the connected with the source of the Nile um, and an area full of wonders, mm. uh, full of wonders, so from where uh, all the important things which were liked by their gods would come things like, uh, frankincense, myrrh, yeah. uh, different kinds of, um, uh, different kinds of woods, mm-hmm. different kinds of bells, which are used for the rituals and so on. And as a result, they considered it as actually the land is a the gods. It's considered mm. as the land is a gods. Uh, and it, uh, the people who the are also supposed to be specially connected with, with, with God. Ever, by God, uh, having different culture, different uh, uh, place of life, um, but always blessed by the grace of God. Now when the, the Greeks started to use the word the Ethiopia, they inherited much of what the Egyptian, the ancient Egyptians had been saying about food. And uh, in more or less the same way as the as, as Egyptians, where the Greeks also had the concept of uh, the blessed people of God uh, living in Ethiopia. Uh, and uh, the, 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 they, they talk about the blameless Ethiopians. Uh-huh. Uh, they talk about uh, their gods, Zeus. Uh, uh, Going from his uh, mountain of with his father, gods, his followers, and spending his, uh, his, his summer, uh, having summer res- residence in Ethiopia in mm-hmm. France, with the blameless people of And uh, from that onwards you have quite a number of about uh, Ethiopia uh, being the land of the gods Now, um I'm talking about the 9th century before Christ, about 300, okay. Now, later on, later on, in the 4th, in the 3rd century before Christ, and long after the Greeks had conquered much of the, the Near the Middle East under Alexander the Great, Egypt had also come under uh, the Greeks and uh, the Greeks had established there uh, what uh, is called the Ptolemic dynasty. The Ptolemic dynasty which would last until uh, until actually Roman conquest of Egypt in the first century uh, before Christ. Now uh, Alexandria this very famous town the city in Egypt, was founded called after the name of the conqueror and Alexander. And it became a very important cultural center. It became a center of Greek literature. I uh, have been talking about the, the Ptolemy dynasty, which established the dynasty, uh, after the conquest by Alexander. And uh, Alexandria being very important. A cultural center. for Greek literature. Uh, and really, the Greeks um, were very much interested in this uh, area. As a whole, not only Egypt but beyond Egypt, the so Nile Valley, and the Red Sea area, and so on. And they start to contact with, uh, with all the people in various parts. Now, but uh, more important is they. Um, now they, the commoners, uh, the, the Greeks, in the, sometime in the middle of the, th- the third century, uh, decided to have the the books of the Bible translated into into Greek, mm-hmm. and uh, when they translated it into into Greek. Uh, this was, this was done by Jewish scholars, uh, and the legend is that uh, uh, the Ptolemy, the particular king at that time, collected uh, 70 well-known Jewish scholars and asked each one of them to come out with an independent translation of uh, the Old Testament, uh, the books of the Old Testament. And, um, uh, And they translated uh, the Bible from the Torah, the Hebrew. Now, when they do this, uh, they translated the ancient Hebrew word of Kush, with the word Ethiopia. Hmm. So, Ethiopia became equivalent to Kush. Now, Kush for in the ancient Egyptians as well as the ancient people of Israel the people, speaking people it was the land hidden to the south of you know, Egypt and there is actually a small area it was called Kush by the ancient Egyptians the, the ancient Egyptians and, and of course also to meant black complexion, dark complexion to people in to to the middle of the South, and also to, to the people of Africa, to the south of Egypt. And particularly connected with the source of the Nile again. Uh, the Nile, of course, is uh, very important for Egyptian history, for ancient civilization. Well, well, uh, the history of the world is uh, because uh, it's really on two sides of the, of, uh, the river. Uh, and I know that this wonderful ancient human civilization has developed. So, the, the source of that, uh, the reason I came, uh, the people who lived uh, around the sources of the geographical uh, characteristics of the areas itself were of great people. Egyptian provincial and also for all ancient people who have come to contact with with and so Kush, Uh the land Kush and the people the Kushites, where where people very close to connect with ancient Egypt and the history of ancient Egypt. Now, so in short, it is Kush which became the Hish, mm. uh, and it was a reference, a reference to all dark complexion people, to all Africans. Uh, of course, there so is a particular emphasis on the people of the Nile, around the source of the Nile, and particularly uh, between between the Red Sea and the River. Now, uh, when historians, earlier historians, Greek historians like Herodotus, who actually visited, uh, visited Egypt, and actually did come to a place which he considered to be the frontier between Egypt and the land of Egypt. Like Egypt mm-hmm. and and he, he knew, collected quite a lot of uh, traditions and, most of them inflated with the characters. Now, the coming of the word Ethiopia into the Bible, the Greek version of the Bible, Mm -hmm. Uh, the ancient word Ethiopia, so many books of uh, the Bible, so many verses, various books of the Bible, uh, now brought to the term to another level, Uh, a level where where, of course, it, 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 it was accessible to all people who, who read, uh, the, the and so on. Uh, and when it comes to Christian times, the first time when Christianity seems to have been preached in, in the region of was not. After, after the death of Christ himself, mm-hmm. one of Christ's disciples, Philip uh, we set up the first man who actually uh, converted and baptized an African, uh, an Ethiopian, a very important professor uh, of the Queen of Shiva, the Queen of Neroi. Mm -hmm. Now, Meroe is an ancient kingdom of Kush, Shrine kingdom, which was there from the 8th, 9th century of Christ Mm -hmm. and uh, whose kings uh, sometimes, in fact, conquered Egypt. uh, Went beyond Palestine and confronted other Asian powers like Assyria and so on. Uh, so it was, it was a very big uh, African state, the first important African state. Now, this Philip uh, was the officer, of the of the queen in the first century, in the middle of the first century AD. He was around who apparently was converted to Mm Christian Baptist, the first Africa, first Ethiopian. Now, um, so there is no doubt that uh, Christianity came to Ethiopia very early, immediately after um, the death, the lifetime of Christ himself. And uh, then, of course, there are also quite a number of other traditions which indicate that other, other disciples of Christ, particularly St. Matthew, evangelists, uh, but also people in, in Ethiopia, particularly to our part of the country, in Ethiopia, mm-hmm. is, is considered sometimes This is where we are talking about traditions, mm-hmm. traditions the, the Now, although, This was the beginning of Christianity in the land of Ethiopia, the earliest beginning of the land, in the land of Ethiopia. Uh, It doesn't seem to be the case that Christianity took deep roots in the land of Ethiopia for many centuries to come. Uh, So it was only in the fourth century after Christ. That we really come uh, to see the, 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 the establishment, the solid establishment of the Christian Church, and this time it was it was done in action mm. in the kingdom. Mm. Now, if you within this is almost three, four centuries, quite a number of centuries. The old kingdom of Meroe was no longer there. Uh, it, was, it was a rival uh, to Aksum for long. Uh, there were a number of wars between Aksum and Meroe. And Aksum, which are, are very powerful community on the Red Sea, a lot of the Magna Carta, they found this greater, stronger and support and, and uh, alliance with, with the Greeks. Mm-hmm. So it ada much more powerful, and uh, the tool of Aksu, uh, which uh, is called finally dalam finally, itu kita very tahu, kita dah tahu so and so kita dah tahu the kita dah tahu so in dah tahu so kita dah so kita dah so kita dah to uh, both, uh, the, the queen of which uh, had, uh, had been uh, the, 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 the ruler at the time when the first African was a Muslim the village, that in its place, from strongest. In fact, the only from Africa, Black Africa, are State was, was actually an axiom. Now, an axiom, therefore, had to a large uh, extent inherited uh, much of the historical uh, characteristics of ancient Ethiopia, rural Ethiopia, and including the when well, when they talk about Ethiopia in here about 185, they also might talk about mm-hmm. that was that was where the only good capital secure. And not only this, but the document to make themselves also decided uh, to to identify themselves with the name. Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were they were included good ancient were a good there were there in the a in the part, the mm-hmm. part of the world push part the the Greek conception uh, uh, but, but now in a much greater sense it uh, came to us to see and And uh, especially because now we've the converted to Christianity and uh, and, as a result they uh, inherited all the Judeo-Christian traditions. I mean all the the books of the Old Testament as well as books of the New Testament came along with Christianity immediately Translated into the ancient Egyptian language, because is the language of the state, and, the mm-hmm. and uh, when again it was translated, when uh, uh, they found out the word Ethiopia in uh, the Greek uh, version, it was really from the Greek version that uh, the nature of translation was done. Although other uh, versions, the Hebrew version, the uh, Canaanite were also used. Now, uh, here, the case of translation Now, here, the appearance of the term Ethiopia in several so verses in uh, the books of the old Testament, uh, uh, it has the attachment of the to uh, mm-hmm. the name of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and already the first Christian king, the man who conquered Himalaya, the man who uh, was the first to establish the church in the theatre, mm-hmm. uh, he himself has actually left us a very important inscription, uh, which, was, which was written now 1, almost 1700 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we have it, we have it. For, uh, the inscription is still starting So We have copies of it. Now, this, is, this inscription, uh, he, you know, he gives himself quite a lot of different uh, He had extensive territory, not only nothing, I don't know the area of Indonesia. So he calls himself King of Sala, King of Aksu, King of mm-hmm. and, and then um, he also calls himself uh, a King of King of Ethiopia. Mm. King of Ethiopia. now. In this inscription I'm referring to was written in three languages. So written uh, in Greek, in Jean, and uh, in South Arabic. South Aram Now in the Semitic language, Sabia used the word Habasha. So it pushes Kingdom king of in, in the Greek. In the Lubin, this was consisted of king of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Now this miracle, movie is already at that time, you know, eh, 100 years ago, there was an equation, the equation between Hashem mm-hmm. and Egypt. Uh, and from that time onwards, the official operation of the country, the kingdom of Oxford, and in the states that inherited it, state. You know, we have the history of the history of Ethiopia very long. And uh, it is a history of continuity. You know, because it first started up, so the was being big enough. And then, you know, further south, you know, to be in Laliwala. The Laliwala, I visited last week. Because mm-hmm. it was the capital, the like, Ethiopian state. Uh, oh. You know, middle, uh, you know, from the, the beginning of the... Maybe mm-hmm. uh, uh, But it was the same state. Uh, and so the center has moved. It was the same state. It's always the same structure, the same tradition, I Christian, the also okay? And then later on, you know, the 14th the century, the was the to the south. Where we are now, mm-hmm. in the center are not very far from where we are now. This like, is there was no. from that time of the as far back as years, the main Egypt became the official nation of. To the state today, mm-hmm. which is called Krishna. And this, as like I said, the largely due to the part that that time, I for a long time, we heal were where he the only Christian with a kingdom, you know, some power, mm-hmm. and it's presumably possible. Influence in the and with extensive a lot of And alliances maybe later the eastern And because of this, the name of the And of course, we have quite a lot of names, Ethiopia is rich culture. Ethnic, uh, uh, each of which uh, has their own Mhm. The which the Tibetan, Tibetan, Mm-hmm the But as a whole, because of this is going it's, it's to because came to be Now, what does this mean? Yeah. What this means is at the same time, Ethiopia will heritage not only to not the name of but also all the images. Mm and the people of mm-hmm. uh, And that's why, you know, we, well, the number of, uh, of associations made between our and we make the ancient and so, uh, this is, once again, and uh, this is a idea from the tradition of uh, the people. Mm-hmm. So tradition uh, the great identity uh, the biblical identity of Arthur and Ethiopia and so on all really derive the origin from and that's why I yeah. here. so really essentially this is, this is uh, mm-hmm. since, uh, the historical background for Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Uh, now um, I said a moment ago that it's very important, this discussion is very important uh, for uh, our brothers to the be Nascora uh, uh, because uh, their, their understanding, their vision of the Egyptian uh, essentially comes out from uh, their contact with uh, the old documents and uh, the biblical texts. Uh, mm-hmm. Really, the, the, the realities of uh, the, the country mm-hmm. uh, And as a result, of it, it is, it's very easy to, to mix up the two. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very important to make a clear distinction between, between the people who are involved in the Naka, described in ancient sources, and the history. Of the uh, because this country, the poor Ethiopia today, What lot of restrictions have been made in this. That's why there's a whole lot of misunderstanding about Ethiopia uh, uh, and uh, the world. Uh, this is poor Ethiopia. One of which, one of the major historical problems problem is the tradition of the Shiba and, uh, the, the, the tradition evolving around the Falasha the, yes. the Jews, the software, the, the, and the co Jews and so forth. that all these problems are very closely associated with the sense of surgery and the practice Mm-hmm.
0: Let me uh, <laughs> you, you mentioned Herodotus, but Herodotus also made reference to the Egyptians being black when he talked about that the um, Coltrins, I think he knew that they were a colony of Egypt because they had black skin and woolly hair. Um, do you uh, also in your research, uh, see the Egyptian people as African people, black African people.
2: Well, um, I think the most important, uh, uh, you know, evidence uh, in ancient history, from where can start also the study of the languages of the Now mm-hmm. um, is the language of ancient Egyptians. The language of ancient Egyptians is part of the same family of languages. Mm-hmm. African people, the people of Africa, general, and and also the, the, the Semitic speaking people, also the Semitic Semitic language, also African. You know there is this uh, large family of which is called Afro-Asian. Mm-hmm. Afro-Asian. It's called Afro-Asian because uh, most of the languages belong to this this. Uh, family are spoken in Africa, Asiatic because one of the branches, the Semitic, is spoken in Asia Western Asia, mm-hmm. the Asiatic, Asiatic, Asiatic continent. It also called Asiatic. Now, uh, Asiatic, it's called Afro-Asiatic now. In Afro-Asiatic, ancient Egyptian, is one of the branches. Mm-hmm. Six major branches mm-hmm. of the uh, Asiatic. Now, the other branch is Latin, and another branch is Cushitic. Mm-hmm. So, Cushitic is an ancient Egyptian, which, of course, I tried to you know, summarize a moment ago. It was continuous, mm-hmm. Bush, a continuous, country, continuous areas. Egypt being the south of the north. And the the Kushites being immediate to the south. Now, I I have no doubt in my mind that the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians, were part of of the African world. And uh, that uh, they were an integral part of the Nile Valley. Of course, with lots of contacts also with the outside. I mean, mm. Egypt being where it is, the Delta, the open lines of communication, the connections with Iran, Israel, the connection of the Palestine and, uh, and the North and South. The you, looking for, different kinds of communication, I mean, it was,